What makes a great product? Is it the hand-finished glaze on a vase? The artistry of the label on a drinks bottle? Is it the knowledge that it came from a heritage brand with the best skills in the business, or that it was made sustainably within one country? We appreciate the items that we know have had the hands of a great craftsman or woman on them more than those that came off a factory conveyor belt. And after a period of fast fashion and mass production, it seems the customer is even more aware of where and how their things are created. This is Made in France, a celebration of the rich tradition of French craftsmanship and innovation in manufacturing. This is a country full of ateliers, workshops and schools creating at such a high level that designers from around the world seek out their expertise. Each week we'll be travelling across France to speak to designers, chefs, winemakers, teachers, milliners, ceramicists and plenty more who are making beautifully crafted items. I'm your host, Gillian Tobias. On this week's episode, we're taking the temperature of France's luxury and manufacturing industries. Is France still the place to put your money within these sectors? We'll be speaking to leading people in business, finance and luxury to take stock of recent political events and their effect on the industry. We'll examine what brand France currently means and how sellable it is right now. To set the scene, we hear from Claudie Panseri, equity strategist for UBS Wealth Management from the Chief Investment Office Europe. Since uh, uh, 1643 with uh, Peking Louis XIV, we have uh, seen a very conization of the luxury good and consumer economy across France. So the competition to French product only start very late in early 50 with Italian promoting new designer and then with UK promoting other designer. But also there is clear a reason which is linked to the nature of the French economy. When you look in the French economy, one of the big driver, one of the driver of growth over the years has been consumption. A consumption. The other nature is that uh, France is a country where you have a lot of people traveling to. So when you have uh, travel and tourism, you also have consumption. So this is the reason why consumption is one of the key drivers of growth in the French economy. I think we shouldn't be worried about luxury or consumer companies in France because they are exporting a lot outside France as well and emerging markets remain one of the key drivers of this company in terms of growth. So I would say that internal problems related to the Gilets Jaunes should not have a big impact on luxury consumer branding fund and indeed the recent results were really, really strong. However, I would say that the recent movement are probably stopping uh, the current government to do more in terms of reform. They stop uh, to advance with what they announced uh, during uh, uh, the beginning of uh, the period after the election. But I will also say that they are trying to bring some support to consumption and what they recently announced in terms of uh, cutting tax and uh, in, um, rising uh, some salaries, low-level low salaries, could probably bring more consumption, not probably to global luxury goods or luxury brand, but more consumption in terms of specific retail sales in the country. So I will, I will say that... Uh, Yes, we may have some volatility around the numbers, but still what has been announced recently by Macron and government should support the economy anyway. 
I think there are two growth areas, one which is already well established is the industry in France. I'm thinking about uh, big uh, companies, conglomerate, which are doing already very well and well exposed to emerging growth as well. So I think industrial, aircraft, aerospace and defense are companies which are already well settled in France and doing very well. Then we have fintech and tech, which has been supported by the recent government. So I think also fintech and tech uh, may find more support with in the Brexit case because clearly uh, France is proposing itself as an alternative to London will be not the case will be split between Frankfurt and Paris but anyway there are some area like fintech and tech on which we may find a nice surprise uh, from France and French companies broaden our subject out a little and for the latest analysis of the luxury industry in France, Monocle's senior editor Sophie Grove sits down with writer and luxury expert Dana Thomas and the Financial Times Paris correspondent Harriet Agnew. I'd like to talk about um, French luxury manufacturing and, and, and textiles, the sort of regional hubs that we used to see, the Calais Lace, the Lyon Silk. Dana, do those exist anymore? And what is the state of of sort of making these products in France? Actually, they do exist um, and they're coming back. There's a reshoring and right-shoring movement that's happening. And curiously, some of it is underwritten by the Chinese. In Calais, the uh, lace production has been bought by Chinese, a big Chinese conglomerate. And they're amping up production and and supporting these, these factories because... They're able to produce for the brands that they're buying, too. The Chinese are buying luxury brands, and then they're buying the manufacturers that make the the luxury brands. And then they're selling them in China to the Chinese. And how competitive, Harriet, are these sort of luxury industries in France? I mean, there's an incredibly high productivity here, uh, but it it does struggle against the likes of, I don't know, Romania or the Far East to make a product that's competitive. What are the strengths of Made in France? And can you see any sort of investment hotspots that you think have real potential in the luxury sector? I think the Made in France label is very important both for for branding abroad. It's something that that foreign consumers like and they rate. Um, And it's also very important for um, job creation at home. And Emmanuel Macron has made this one of the um, tenets of his presidency to to have a sort of industrial re- revival at home and to um, create jobs and to encourage apprenticeship. One quite interesting area I visited last year is uh, Franche-Comté, which is um, in the east of France on the border with Switzerland. Historically, you had um, a lot of the car manufacturers there. And so a lot of the people that were, were trained in making um, textiles for the cars are now being retrained to um, to make things like leather goods. I mean, um, Dana, we all remember your very brilliantly researched book about the luxury sector and how it lost its lustre um, back after the last crash in 2008. But I wondered, um, part of that book was about how the luxury sector needed to go back to provenance, to manufacturing, to a sense of kind of purity, rarity. I wonder if that has happened in France and you saw these luxury houses getting their themselves in order and being more authentic. Well, it's interesting. Deluxe actually came out in 2007. And a lot of people told me after the crash, oh, you predicted the crash, you saw it coming. And I said, well, 
I wish I had because then I could have retired having figured out how to play the stock market. No, I didn't see it coming, though it did feel like what was happening was unsustainable as it was. Yes, a lot of brands have sort of retrenched and CEOs told me they had not realized that they'd gone off message or they'd gone off off the path that they really wanted to pursue, that they had sort of sold out their integrity. They, you know, compromised their integrity for the sake of profits and they kind of pulled it back in line and decided to go back to to doing things the right way, which I thought was, you know, great. But yes, there has been definitely a return to authenticity in part because consumers are demanding it. Consumers are becoming far more informed about what they're buying and wearing thanks to things like Instagram and social media. And they demand things more. They'll go into a store now and say, I want this on their, you know, showing the picture from an Instagram ad and buy in a way that they didn't buy. But they also research and they look it up because you can. It's very easy to just Google it and you find out the horrors of blue jean distressing or leather tanning. And then you're like, "Mm, maybe I need to get something that's organic. And there's there's a movement toward that. And brands being wise are responding to that and and listening to consumers and making things more authentic. They're, whether it's using natural indigo and blue jean production, or it's using more organic cotton in their production, or it's using recycled materials, or making things closer to home as opposed to shipping them around the world. There is a return in right shoring which means bringing back manufacturing, but bringing it back in a nice, clean, good way, paying your workers well in safe environments. They might be bringing back 200 jobs instead of 2,000, but they're 200 good jobs as opposed to 2,000 crummy jobs. And this is all going to be better for the apparel and luxury industry across the board. It must be difficult for France because they were just about to reap so many benefits from the fallout of Brexit and then the Gilets Jeunes <laughs> started their, their protest. Um, do you think that even so... They will. France will will stand to to gain in the aftermath of, of what we're seeing in the UK. Yes, I mean, I think several um, several businesses, notably banks, have decided to expand their presence in in Paris. Our office is opposite um, the new office of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and we can see that they're doing huge. Um, renovations there to move in um, lots of bankers. And Macron at Fashion Week last year stood up and, and said that he wanted creators to feel welcome in France, creators to come to France and to make their products and to design their labels. In terms of luxury, do you think that there is uh, a sort of new guard of, of, of interesting entrepreneurs that could be drawing on some of the French savoir-faire to create new business here? With the aid of technology, yes, and disrupting the model as it exists. You can't find a little studio and do a startup like you used to be able to in Paris because the real estate's too expensive. Same in London. You imagine John Galliano started his company in a walk-up with no heat in Covent Garden. There isn't such a thing anymore. But you can through the internet. And you can do things like bypass wholesale and have direct consumer. And you can contr- you can work directly with artisans in the countryside and have a small operation that doesn't require a lot of space. And you don't have to have a storefront. You can sell directly via the internet. So I think if you take the new model of business, the high-tech model, and you breed it with the old way of doing things, you're going to come up with a new model for the luxury fashion business, which will be great and will be disruptive. Yeah, I would say that um, a brand like Le Slip Francais has been quite successful in that space. So that's a brand selling, um, it started out with men's underwear, but now sort of underwear and, and cottonware in general. And it was born on the internet. 
thanks to a very successful um, social media and marketing campaign, um, has grown enormously. Um, and it's done the sort of reverse of what brands have usually done. So it was born on the internet and now has opened many stores across France, Paris, and um, I think are opening internationally now as well. So that's an example of a brand that's really been able to use the the internet and this kind of made in France label very successfully. You mentioned technology, but it's quite interesting that French textiles and its manufacturing in that sector is very much on the vanguard of, of technology. It's not just the lace weavers of Calais that we're talking about here. Is that a potential um new new frontier for the French fashion industry here? It's a frontier for the entire industry. I've seen it in England and I've seen it in the United States as well. The Keynesian model is about, you know, you have to destroy things in order to rebuild them. And they had to destroy their economy, their textile business in order to bring it in and do something brand new from scratch. You couldn't take an old factory that had been using the same old machines for 70 years, turn it off for a couple months as you rip them out, refit the factory and start up again. It would just you couldn't justify the cost at any point. Could you say we're going to just stop and redo this? But if it's sitting there empty you can go in and buy it for nothing or next to nothing. Those machines have already been moved out and sold to the Japanese or the Chinese or whoever else. And you can come in with new state-of-the-art computer run with, from clean rooms so you're not inhaling cotton bits. And, you're, you know, it's, it's super high-tech and it's in a space that already exists. So you, and you're creating jobs in places where it's been depressed. Therefore, you get help from the local governments. So this is a new model that's going to come back across Europe, I think. Um, it's happening already in the UK and it's happening a bit in France. Um, Italy's always been stable because they never, their textile industry didn't completely collapse. They still have the Como mills. And Lyon, a couple places still exist. They sort of held on in their silk industry. But they're going to come back stronger because they're able to move in and start from scratch. Also, we're seeing some quite interesting developments in technology and things like um, blockchain, which will help brands to basically certify the provenance of their of their goods. Um, and clearly counterfeiting and fake goods is a huge problem for the luxury industry. And then there are things like artificial intelligence, which will help them with e-commerce and data analytics, which can help them better target and market to their customers. Absolutely. Finally, I wanted to ask you, uh, we touched on it earlier, but a little bit about the value of luxury manufacturing to brand France and the overall image of France. How key is, for instance, the sort of perfume, um, the noses of grass or or even the, the fine vineyards to the French identity and to its, to its image abroad? Well, as they always say, it's about terroir. <laughs> it's about the land. And, you know, one of the most beautiful moments of my career was when I was working on Deluxe and I went down for the picking of the May roses in the Chanel fields of Grasse and watching Monsieur Mule, who had these extraordinary hands, like he shook my hand and it disappeared in his, a working, man working the fields his whole life and he was in his 70s by then. And he just walked up to a rose and flicked it with his finger and it popped open. I was like, oh, that is why we're in France, because you have people like Monsieur Mule, who I think was the sixth generation running those fields. Um, and that's what keeps keeps it alive. Yes, the Champagne vineyards are only going to be in Champagne. And the, the, the flowers, 
the the Rose of May and the Jasmine that Chanel sources from grass and the Mimosa from the south of France. You know, it, it has it has to come from there. You can get Turkish Rose of May. It's not the same thing. You can get Jasmine from someplace else. It doesn't have the same because of the terroir. And as Monsieur Mule explained, also you have the sea air of the Mediterranean mixing with the dry air of Provence meeting in their valley, creating, you know, the way the French can tell a story. So... I think that it will always be a part of Made in France is that it's you can't get this anywhere else, that you have the sea breezes, that you have this land and this this earth and that you have this knowledge, this this know how, this history that's passed down from generation to generation. Yeah, I would totally totally agree with what Dana was saying. I think there is this French savoir-faire and this years of history and of storytelling and of making people dream, which is so crucial to the Made in France brand and to France itself. There's a respect for tradition that's very deep and profound and cultural. And while they're very keen on technology, the French, and have been always, you know, the home of the TGV and and the supersonic jet, they don't lose their love of craftsmanship, their love of history and their love of culture and tradition keep these things alive. And therefore, that's the core of luxury in France. Throughout this series, we'll be visiting the workshops of the best and most experienced ateliers in France that work with La Maison Chanel, a leading force in investing in French craftsmanship. This week, we visit L'Ognon, a small company on the edge of Paris who've been pleating material for centuries. Pleats are achieved by intricately making very precise paper moulds, a process that sits somewhere between geometric design and origami. The material is laid between two moulds and ruched into shape before going into an oven. We head down to their workshop for a lesson in pleats. I'm Nadine Dufay and I am the manager of uh, L'Oignon. L'Oignon is a very, very old firm, more than two centuries. The strength of L'Oignon is, above all, it's the real number which is quite impressive of uh, uh, what we call the mold here, which are the paper molds that you've seen downstairs. I should say that we have more than 2,500. The quality of the card, uh, it's quite important. It has to be a very strong one. And now it's more and more difficult to find. But we still have the same supplier for years and we are very uh, uh, careful to keep on having the same one. Here yeah, it's a very small team, but we work together with the uh, Le Marié team, which is much bigger. So here they have seven girls, seven persons here. One is working on the mold, full time all day, only on the paper cards, and designing of new ones. It's a work which is very near from the origami, and uh, she's uh, real passionate, as all the people working in our firms. She is de doing the design by hand, and then she works on the computer just to have the design enlarged on a very huge scale on the paper card. This is a new process we began when she came two or three years ago when we bought L'Oignon. L'Oignon was not working like this. They, they needed six months to do another, another paper card because it was all handmade. 
the, even the design on the paper. And the difficult thing is you have to do exactly the same design on two paper cards, otherwise they don't fit in. And uh, this is a challenge. Of course, we are a very old firm, but we are very modern in the way to work, so we adapt and, and there are new solutions offered by the computers, so we use it. It is in the mind of all the métiers d'art. I mean, it's always to have, to use the, the very important know-how, which is our strength, but how to keep it modern, how to, to be open-minded to new technology, to new uh, machine, to new way, how to work new fabrics, which can, are more challenging, and how to do new design, how to mix the pleats all together. We are all always working in a way to uh, offer the most important different things to our customers. We usually say that the loveliest splits are the one given on Friday because they can have rest. When we take off the, from the oven, they can rest for Saturday and Sunday and we deliver on Monday morning. For me, if you look at somebody pleating, I mean, I'm always amazed and I think it's magic because uh, we never know how the, the fabric will uh, be inside and we will only discover on reopening the mold. As France's wealthiest area outside of Paris, the region of Auvergne-Rhône-Alpes sits in the southeast of the country and is a hotspot for industry. Within this area, you'll find top lighting and mechanical engineers, some of the best high-tech companies in the country, big tyre manufacturers like Michelin, and a large number of other smaller industries and scientific research hubs. All this creates millions of jobs for people who live here. We speak to Annabelle André-Laurent in Auvergne-Rhône-Alpes to find out more about why this area is such an industrious hub. It's good quality. It's a respect of the consumers. It's a respect of the environment because a lot of our company are very respectful of the environment and the planet and tradition. But that's the quality in the world that represents the Auvergne-Rhône-Alpes companies. Our region consists of 8 million of inhabitants. We have as much inhabitants as Switzerland. We have about the surface of Ireland. And we have the GDP of Denmark. So 242 billion euros on GDP. So it's a huge region. It's very attractive region thanks to a rich ecosystem. We are the second region of France and the seventh European region for economic growth and development. We are the first industrial region of France with more than 500,000 employees working in industries. About industries, we have around 600 companies. 80% of them are particularly dynamic and innovating. They are small and medium-sized businesses. And we also have few major international groups, including I think you know Michelin, you know Seb and Tefal, you know Safran, Salomon, Nestlé, Sanofi Pasteur. We are the first region in terms of investment in research and development. A lot of university, major school, 
of researchers, 600 laboratories. All the ecosystem is working all together to make from the region the first region of innovation, development, economic and industry. It's the ecosystem we make the richest of the region Auvergne-Rhône-Alpes. Let me ask you a little bit more about this idea of tradition, because a lot of what you've talked about is research and development, innovation, technology, and we know about how exciting that is and how important that is. What about this question, though, of making sure that even with all of those advances, there's also still a conversation about heritage, about tradition, about those kind of values. Is that important too? That's important because we have a lot of family businesses and the tradition, the know-how is part of that companies, you know, it's, it's what that made that those companies very important. We can make in Auvergne-Alpes some product that you can find nowhere else. In agriculture, in food, in cheese, in meat, in all the food know-how we have that's very important, that make, I don't know, it's a circuit court, but uh, people know, we, we are communicated on tradition products made in Auvergne-Rhône-Alpes. So, for example, when we know some different events in international, we always bring with us all the traditional products which are made in Auvergne-Rhône-Alpes. All the products we have are very important. If we look to the future, Annabelle, let's say we have this conversation in 10 years' time. Do you think the situation will be the same? Are there any things that you're worried about for the future? Or are you very confident that if we were to talk in 10 years' time, there'd still be lots to celebrate? I think in 10 years, we will have a bit less companies, but all our companies will be very digital. We want to create new great regional champions based on the traditional made in Auvergne-Rhône-Alpes, the know-how, but also with new technology, digital and new way of communication. To end the program each week, we hear from various Monocle staff about the French products they love. This week, Monocle's executive producer, Tom Edwards, tells us why a squeaky toy called Sophie la Giraffe is a saving grace to parents of teething children all around the world. What does Made in France mean to you? What particular blend of qualities represents what is a uniquely appealing brand on the world stage? Tasked with selecting but one product that embodies all the virtues isn't easy, but casting an eye, and perhaps appropriately for radio, an ear around my house, one old friend made herself known. <laughs> I say old friend, but the delights of France's premier baby toy, Sophie La Giraffe, are in fact reasonably new to me, dating back as they do only three and a bit years to when my first son started teething. This peculiar little rubber giraffe with her smiley face, varied bodily protuberances and appealing dappled decor arrived as a gift from trusted friends, also veteran parents. She'll sort that out, they advised, of Fred's inflamed gum fury, and sort Sophie did. Made by Vully from the Haute-Savoy, this rubbery little stalwart for fretful teethers has been pacifying gurglers globally since her creation way back in 1961. May 25th, in case you were wondering, St. Sophie's Day, of course. The Vully factory in Rumilly takes delivery of the Malaysian Havea tree latex from which Sophie is crafted. 
There, it's treated and converted before being put through a unique rotational moulding process. Then, and here it's a little less clear, as Vully is justifiably guarded about the detail of its hand-finishing processes, La Giraffe is finished, lanky appendages added, those prominent ears and little horns, ossicones apparently, shaped and styled, that familiar mottled colour scheme applied. Sophie La Giraffe's mouth parts are bang on the money apparently as a nipple substitute, but with all those giraffic extremities there's a suckable nub for the proclivity of every baby and whatever teat it might have become accustomed to. Health visitors, developmental psychologists, mums and dads, they're all of a mind about Sophie's suitability for her tiny followers. From relief for teething gums, to her contrast colours, graspable limbs, unmistakable but apparently reassuring. The safety and natural credentials of that rubber, to the ease of cleaning. This is manufacturing en France exactly as it should be. Good materials, a great idea, and plenty of loving care. Round my way, I've noted Sophie increasingly as a calling card of social demarcation. In lieu of the slightly sad lost kid's mitten popped on a railing, a likewise lost but unfailingly cheery Sophie propped on a wall or astride a tree branch serves, here in London at least, as a territorial marker. The middle-class breeders have taken over the neighbourhood. So with more than 50 million Sophies shipped around the world, over half a century of made-in-France heritage, and the endorsement of at least two critics whose views I value more than any others, Merci, Fred and Max, don't just take my word for it. For Monocle, I'm... OK, OK, maybe you can have just too much of a good thing. That brings us to the end of this edition of Made in France. Join us next week when we'll be roaming around the country in search of more great artisanship. Be sure to check out our sister programme, Métier Class, where you can hear one of the final interviews with the fashion label's late art director, Carl Lagerfeld. You can download the show from monocle.com or from your favourite audio source. This programme was produced by Holly Fisher and Tom Edwards, and our thanks to Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Sophie Grove. I'm Gillian Tobias. Thanks for listening. <laughs>